Texas. Well, maybe I should welcome myself back. I'm the one who's been gone a long time. Two weeks. Sorry for the long absence, but I've been on vacation. So now we are to Oscar Wilde II, the second portion of Oscar Wilde's life that will focus mostly on just his American tour. So it's a very special part of his life, you might say, his coming out internationally, but it only covered two years, 1882 and 1883. Wilde knew how to strike a pose. During his days at Oxford, he claimed to have almost single-handedly launched a revolution in style of dress. He recognized that easy fame could be gained through outrageous fashion and clashing with conservative traditions. Certainly, we can look at modern celebrities like Lady Gaga and Elton John, who learned this lesson well. Wild style of dress was the subject of many editorials and, and critical reviews by those who attended his lectures in the U.S. One newspaper editor humorously warned that the Texas men were not prepared for wearing knee breeches because men in Texas did not have poetic legs. They had more of the prosaic variety, so they were not encouraged to adopt the fashion endorsed by the esthetes like Oscar Wilde. On stage, Wilde seemed to impress many a critic with his size. He was about six foot four, and though thin, probably looked large given his tendency to wear large coats and capes. His shoulders were broad. One editor in Colorado saw him going off to see the silver mines in Leadville, dressed like a miner, with a long, sturdy coat hanging to the ground. She said that he looked like a Texas ranger who had gotten rich. Oscar's hair was thick and shoulder-length, parted in the middle. His face was said to have had a lovely complexion. He didn't have much of a beard or the potential of one. Some medical historians have come to believe that he may have suffered from giantism, a condition that makes one an exceptionally large size at an unusually young age. It also causes one to develop a head that is clearly large in relation to the body. This, if true, contributed to his classic pose of his head always tilted to the side when leaning against a wall or when lounging on a couch, absorbed in reading. Critics say that he slouched against the podium during his lectures. Nonetheless, his flamboyant dress attracted the audience more than his words. In Colorado, he heard that some local roughs were planning on coming to the lecture to shoot both him and his manager for their dandy dress. He sent word to them that there was nothing they could do to his manager that would intimidate him. Though a dandy or a sissy boy, as some described him in America because of his long hair and stylish dress, he surprised many of the stalwart roughs of the American West with his ability to outdrink them. He was certainly a man who could hold his liquor. Women certainly adored him. He was overwhelmed with letters from young girls asking him to mail them a lock of his hair. Oscar wrote in his diary that the young man assisting him on his tour was nearly going bald trying to keep up with all these requests. Now, what was his style of speech like on this tour? Throughout his American tour, audiences complained about Wilde's accent. His projection was often weak and his accent thickly British. However, given that he was actually Irish, audiences were coping with the British accent underscored by the residual Irish nuances underneath. 
You will recall that Wilde himself said that when he went to Oxford, the first thing he lost was his Irish accent, but it is doubtful that he lost it thoroughly. Another aspect of his speech that was likely difficult for the American ear was the sing-song nature of his inflections that some described as monotonous. Nonverbally, he played with his gloves or watch-chain to the point of distraction. Another element of difficulty was created by his erudite vocabulary. His lectures were replete with divergences into Greek history, French sculpture, Italian Renaissance painters, and Roman philosophy. He wandered all over because he was a genius. Critics claim that Wilde's strange accent required the audience to struggle mightily to understand his words, though some complimented him for his precise diction. For those who listened carefully, though, they were treated to world-class wit. He often said that he made sure to take his diary on the train because he always wanted to make sure he had something fascinating to read. His faux conceit, and not always faux, was fun. A decade later, when in England a young girl asked him what were the ten best books ever written, he said, I cannot answer that because I have only written six. What did Wilde actually talk about on this American tour? He was already regarded as an expert art critic, though often accused of being derivative or borrowing his ideas from Whistler or Pater. He was endeavoring to develop his own expertise and his own reputation, so it was natural that he would attempt to develop his own voice, his opinions, his spin on aesthetic theory. He may have erred on the side of uncredited influence from time to time from his Oxford professors, but for a young scholar of 25, that would hardly be new in the world. In America, Wilde talked mostly about domestic aesthetics, how to make a beautiful home, create an aesthetically charming town, even majestic cities. Clearly, this was a topic of much greater interest to women than men, especially in 1882. And this notion is borne out by his own recollection of speaking in San Antonio, where he complained that the men were quite a distraction walking in and out with their squeaky boots. The men were going out for beer, he said. But the women had an interest in him because he so often advised them to make sure to take advantage of local surroundings for beautifying their homes. Great art and beautiful surroundings were not just for the rich, he said. The working class needed it even more. Here is a sample of the sort of thing he liked to cover in his lecture concerning domestic beauty. You have heard, I think, a few of you, of two flowers connected with the aesthetic movement in England, and said, I assure you erroneously, to be the food of some aesthetic young men. Well, let me tell you that the reason we love the lily and the sunflower, in spite of what Mr. Gilbert may tell you, is not for any vegetable fashion at all. It is because these two lovely flowers are in England the most perfect models of design, the most naturally adapted for decorative art, the gaudy leonine beauty of the one and the precious loveliness of the other, giving to the artist the most entire and perfect joy. And so with you, let there be no flower in your meadows that does not wreathe its tendrils around your pillows. 
No little leaf in your titan forest that does not lend its form to design. No curving spray of wild rose, of briar, that does not live forever in carven arch or window or marble. No bird in your air that is not giving the iridescent wonder of its color, the exquisite curves of its wings in flight, to make more precious the preciousness of simple adornment. We spend our days, each one of us, in looking for the secret of life. Well, the secret of life is art. This was a common theme for Wilde throughout his lectures and in a theme, and a theme that many in the audiences appreciated. Wilde embraced their meadows and woods and natural stone as inherently beautiful materials for architectural and interior design. It seemed that Many feared this foreigner would come from afar and criticize their way of life or belittle their choices. Instead, he complimented the beautiful potential that surrounded them. He encouraged them to quit seeking out the cheap furniture shipped from the eastern seaboard and rather to emulate the Quakers, who made their own sturdy furniture from their local forests. Wilde told them that beautiful things should not be left out of their lives or assumed to be the luxuries reserved for the rich. He said that the common man, working so hard from morning to night, had all the more need to come home to a place, a home of aesthetic joy. He believed that the human spirit was incomparably lifted in the presence of genuine beauty. Wilde believed that people were mistaken when they divided things into those that are beautiful and those that are practical or useful. He said the two should be one because the only true opposition to beauty is ugliness. Wilde remains to this day a powerful force in the world of cultural arts because perhaps he was ultimately right when he asserted that to be great is to be misunderstood. Part of his fame was created via his complicated persona, one of enormous contradictions perhaps nurtured. He was a married man who was gay, a man of middle-class heritage who preferred the elite classes, an Irishman who became English, a Protestant who loved Catholicism and converted in his last days, and a man who loved life intensely but committed a kind of slow public suicide he did himself in. Yet since his time, his reputation has been reanimated in a sense. He is now a cultural hero for standing alone against a world of intolerance and Victorian myopia. So now we turn to examine how all that happened. As we shall see, somewhat like a Shakespearean tragedy, his hubris ultimately brought him down. Like many gifted talkers, he believed he could talk his way out of his troubles. But the society of his time was not as liberal and free-thinking as he hoped they were. 